surprise, we have the audio from the roundtable for you. I'm so excited about this. This was unexpected for, for pretty much all of us. At the very beginning, Dr. Feinstein wanted to ensure that the roundtable discussion was going to be open. Any questions could be asked. And that just lent itself to a little bit of vulnerability of what kind of content would be brought up. As it turns out, um, it seems like all the audio is is totally fit for public consumption and, and okay to put out there. I'm really excited this is getting out. Um, I, a, I'm just glad that we recorded it because the intention really was not for this to go public. Um, but there's just such great information and there are great questions that Dr. Feinstein answers and just great discussions that go on as well. So I'm really excited for anybody who's interested in the Float Research Collective, particularly those who are interested in being part of the Float Research Collective. The, um, definitely listen to part one of this, Dr. Feinstein's intro to the FRC, but then it really goes in depth with how this can actually manifest and some great brainstorming goes on. So thank you to Dr. Feinstein, to Brooke, and to everybody who is in the roundtable. And thanks to everybody who got back to me on approving their audio or their name being mentioned. Uh, we did get sign-offs on all of that for this to go live. So yay, super excited about that. Also, I just want to give a really big shout out to our patrons and our sponsors. It's because of you guys we are able to who, able to create episodes week after week with awesome content like this, whether we're discussing the float centers themselves and how to start and run them, to bringing on amazing guests like Dr. Feinstein and hosting these roundtables that I think really helps the community. So thank you so much to, for supporting us on Patreon, and thank you so much to our supporters like Helmbot. Helmbot is the software that we use for our float center. It's it's doing all the scheduling, it's doing all the booking, um, excuse me, scheduling for our employees, booking for our customers, and uh, all, the, all the stuff in between that we used to use so many different pieces of software for. It is growing just year after year, and it seems like month after month, it's just getting more and more in-depth. It can do more and more. We absolutely love Helmbot, and it, there's no risk to trying it out. You go to helmbot.com, you check out the demo, you schedule a free tour, and you see if it's a good fit for you. My guess is that it's going to be. There's really no reason to not be checking out Helmbot at this point. Also, thanks so much to Isopod for supporting the show. We love our Isopods at the Float Shop as well. We had one for years and then decided to replace an older float tank, and we knew we wanted to replace it with another Isopod. Their craftsmanship is incredible. We know that these things don't fall apart. We know that they've been doing fiberglassing for years, so these things don't get bubbling six months after you buy them. They don't fall apart. They use incredible stainless steel components for their filtration systems and their struts. Everything about them is it's just uh, built incredibly well, and they're just so friendly looking for our, our customers, and they're so spacious. So i-sopod.com is where you want to go, isopod.com. Tell them we sent you. I am so excited about this episode. Let's get to it, and let's join Dr. Feinstein and everybody who is at the Float Research Collective Roundtable. Let's go ahead and have a discussion. I'm going to let Dylan um, and his crew moderate and feel free to ask questions and let's all feel free to, to chime in and, and feel free to unmute yourself as well if you'd like. I just want to take a moment and say thank you to Brooke and Justin because I I don't think it can go unsaid that, that they are leaving they are taking a huge risk here. They're becoming entrepreneurs by doing this. They're leaving um, you know, they have kids, they have family, they're leaving a, a situation that is, I mean, quote unquote safe, um, you know, a steady paycheck as I've learned is a very comfortable thing and, <laughs> and not having that is, is scary. And, uh, Justin truly believes in floating and his, uh, his entire family is doing this to promote floating and, and, uh, learn more so that it can, there can be more, um, care in the world for people. I, I just, um, I don't think it can be overstated how how big of a choice that is. So thank you guys so much for what you're doing. It it uh, it's amazing. Thank, thank you, Dylan. I appreciate that. Um, Dr. Marcus Heim um, asked about the NIH grant that you mentioned in the past. Um, wondering if you got it and if there's an opportunity to reapply. Yeah, so we did get that grant. It's an R34. It's in its final year now. It's a three year grant. Um, my, my colleague, Dr. Saib Khalsa, is, is finishing up that study. We're almost done completely with recruitment. 
And this is sort of a long-term study of the effects of floating on anxiety disordered patients. And I'm excited to, to dig into that data. We're, um, as soon as we finish off the study, hopefully by the end of this year and early next year, we'll be able to start analyzing that data. And then we'll publish it, of course, as well. If the data is going to show uh, what we predicted, which is floating does elicit long-term benefit, I think we're in prime position to reapply for a larger NIH grant. It all depends on the data, of course. And so this was sort of a mid-range grant. And if the data is promising, we could apply for a much larger grant and I could help Dr. Khalsa with that. And so that's an exciting moment if we could get a really large grant, but all of that is contingent on sort of the data from this smaller uh, grant. We're constantly being asked for a simple outline of what the research shows. Uh, disability insurance and workers' compensation in Australia is seeking this. Can we discuss this further in the discussion portion of the presentation? Why don't we let Tony talk about that? Tony, are you still on? Tony, I really want you to, to be the leader of the, the, um, the medical uh, um, uh, approval committee because you've done amazing work in Australia. Honestly, Tony's put her lifeblood into this. And, and maybe you could give a little preview, maybe just a few minutes of what you've been able to accomplish? Um, I think one of one of the pieces, uh, we, we actually sponsored um, Justin to come back to Australia a couple of years ago, and we got him in front of the um, an, um, a group called Phoenix, who leads um, on post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh, trauma therapy in, in Australia. Um, and they were very favourable to the prospect of float um, being... Uh, a, a reasonable or, and realistic and um, credible therapy for treatment. The issue that they raised was um, that there wasn't enough research behind it to give it the bolts that it needs in a medical um, sphere. So I went looking to see what, in fact, was being supported by this very large organisation, Phoenix in Australia, they supported EMDR. They also supported tapping therapy. And when I dug a little bit deeper as to why these two therapies were considered more credible than um, float, it really came down to a simple fact. The WHO organisation, the World Health Organisation, had actually endorsed these two therapies. And there were a couple of reasons behind it. One, they had published randomised control studies um, uh, at, a, at a, re, a really high sample level. So we're talking about hundreds and thousands of um, participants that had participated in the research. Um, and they'd also um, been, they're also therapies that have allied health, um, real people, tangible people behind them um, as therapists. Not, they're not devices like, like our therapy is in float therapy. And, um, and it became very clear that we needed the support of the WHO in order for um, the float therapy to be accepted by the medical profession. Once the WHO endorses um, a product um, a, um, or, or, a, uh, or a therapy, then it basically gets international platform, international recognition. And um, organisations like Phoenix become much more comfortable about including it in their, um, in their research um, pieces. Um, they get more comfortable actually um, uh, having clients and patients participate in um, that therapy, um, and they include it in all of their uh, paraphernalia. So it seems like we've um, we need to really uh, think about how we support Justin in this collective, with the aim of actually getting the WHO on board, um, because that will be the shortest path to actually getting the medical industry supporting um, something that is very valuable and would benefit a great number of um, individuals. Um, so in Australia, what we've done is about two years ago, we started um, um, somewhat of a movement where we, uh, in my local float centre, I started advertising that there could be funding available for workers through workers' compensation insurance through a national disability insurance scheme that we have in Australia, 
both of these are on a national platform. And it's been a slow burn. It hasn't been quick. But two years down the track, we're seeing momentum. Um, for the last two months, I've made 5000 Australian dollars, wish they were US, but they're not, 5000 Australian dollars in workers' compensation and national disability insurance clients um, having their services paid for by those two schemes. So it, it's a bit of a drip feed. It's not a consistent um, line of revenue at this point. But what we're finding is that um, it comes down to individual case managers, simply put. So the clients, we encourage the clients to take the issue up with their provider. They then are encouraged or blocked uh, depending on their case manager. And we do offer a, a support service where we are happy to talk to the case managers of those um, funds to educate them. And interestingly, eight out of 10 of them would automatically say to me, where can I go to for an easy to find research piece that outlines the benefits of flotation and the research that sits behind it? Because their first response is typically, no, we won't fund this because there's not enough research behind it. So we send them off to the clinical um, float page and those who are diligent will read through um, some of the pieces there or view some of the video. Others will come back with questions, but I'd say this is the minority. We get a return on these case managers asking more questions, maybe a third of the time, and the other 70% basically will just simply say no. So from, from a perspective of how do we get this moving, I think um, uh, Justin's done an excellent outline of what it's going to take to get this up and running, and there's probably a two-year proposition in it. But in terms of um, a low-hanging fruit is that immediately a white paper that basically summarises some of these um, uh, research, the excellent research that does exist and, um, and makes the argument really clearly and simply for these um, companies in terms of how that the research to date supports uh, anxiety, depression and PTSD. And um, we've got clients who will actually lead the charge on it um, if we put the research uh, out there in a more simplistic way, as Justin has outlined. Some of the terminology in these scientific um, journals are, are overwhelming and beyond the capability of most people to follow. But if we could have a, um, a layperson's version of it, we would certainly find that we get more momentum in Australia and we're learning. We're learning what the arguments are that um, these insurers want to hear, um, what, uh, how we can actually support the clients to make their individual cases and also how we educate the case managers. Um, it's been quite, quite a trajectory in terms of um, the learning curve, but it is starting to show some results. It is possible. I haven't mentioned the other three schemes, but there is um, a slower burn on road trauma commission um, funding, um, aged care services, as well as um, I'm going to forget the fifth one. Sorry, it, it, um, it just, oh, veteran affairs, of course, veteran affairs. So those three other funds have actually shown some movement uh, but they're much, much slower. The workers' compensation and the disability insurance schemes are absolutely starting to take off here for us. That's fantastic. It, it's really exciting, Tony, and, you know, it, it takes people like Tony behind this. I think the medical approval committee of this collective is going to be paramount because each country will have their own intricacies. You know, for America, um, most of us is uh, health insurance providers, and we're going to have to get health insurance providers to list floating as an approved treatment with a code. And you would then charge to that code. And in order to get an approved code, you have to have proper randomized controlled trials showing that floating is effective for X, Y, or Z. And so I think those RCTs are going to be really critical for getting approval in America, getting approval through the World 
a health organization, as Tony alluded to. And, you know, that's one of the major goals of the collective is to perform those RCTs and fundraise so that we can do them. Tony, we have a follow-up question. <clears throat> I think people want to talk about insurance and how, um, whether that's risky or not for our industry, whether people, whether the business can make enough money through insurance payments. And uh, David Byrne is asking, or excuse me, is asking how much do you get from the insurance company and how do you determine how much you get from the insurance company? The two that I'm talking about, the national disability and the uh, workers' compensation insurances, as I said, are federal um, funded. In Australia, we do have a welfare state, but this is outside of the welfare state um, uh, system. So these are private insurers um, that basically run um, both, both lines here in terms of workers' compensation. We have about six insurance companies that um, support the entire uh, workers' compensation system in Australia. And the dis national disability insurance is run through a commission. And that basically um, is very similar to the UK model. I'm not sure if anyone's on from the UK, whereby the individual is assessed for um, a disability. They then are given so much funding, X number of dollars per annum, um, for to support their disability, and then they go out and find their own providers, okay? Something similar is happening in the workers' compensation area, but not quite as transparent because there's still that, um, I, I suppose, level of um, proof that's required that ongoingly that you still are unable to work. Tony, so, how, much, how much do you actually get, though, from these various... The, People Sorry, I am getting to that. Um, basically, we charge full price casual. Um, casual. We have not entered into any conversations to negotiate down the price. I did see someone say, you don't want to go down this path because it, you know, it may water down how much you actually get. Um, with both of these schemes, they do have a top dollar that they will pay um, for a service within a certain classification. Um, the National Disability Scheme is very transparent about that, what that is, and that's up to $198 an hour for the classification that we sit within. We don't charge $198. We charge $85 Australian, which is our casual rate. We don't offer any bulk pricing. We don't offer any... Um, um, membership capability because there's an administrative burden in terms of how we actually um, carry this and how we apply for it. There's also an additional um, issue with the disability scheme is that you can only be paid retrospectively. The workers' comp will pay you up front. Um, if they approve 10 sessions, they'll pay you 10 sessions up front. But the National Disability Insurance will expect to be paid retrospectively only after the client has actually visited. Now, that's really exciting. And I think, you know, in America, they, they may try to, knowing our health insurance companies, shortchange us. But my sense is, honestly, every single spot in your schedule during those hard-to-schedule weekday morning and afternoon hours will be full. As soon as health insurance companies reimburse for this, you will have every spot on your schedule full because there's so much desperate need for this. And most of the people who need it the most don't have the money to pay for it. And if they had uh, reimbursement on a weekly or monthly or even daily basis, they would be coming every single day or every single week religiously. That's my prediction. Yeah. If it's okay to, to bounce around a little bit, um, I know insurance, judging by the float conference discussions, uh, insurance is always one that uh, people are excited to talk about and go on, can go on for a long time. Um, uh, to get to, you talked about cloud, uh, cloud-based collection. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not actually looking at the text, but uh, Brad Doak had asked um, if that already exists, if we'd be using something that already exists, or would that need to be built from the ground up? You know, I think we we could be thoughtful in how we do this. You know, when I was at uh, Lloyd Institute, we used RedCap, which is a publicly available database management software for the purpose of clinical trials. 
and it's very useful uh, system. It, it takes a little bit of learning to get used to how to create the different questionnaires and scales, but it's actually not that hard to disseminate once you have that infrastructure in place, such that any float center, for example, could go into the REDCap system with the right username or password and pretty easily learn how to administer these scales on a tablet. So I think, you know, if uh, the research committee uh, uh, decides that this is the right direction, we could pretty easily implement an existing infrastructure like REDCap and then really infuse it with computer savvy people so we could create all the, the relevant questionnaires and then the processes that would be needed to sort of disseminate this to other flow centers. Um, if we had somebody who is really computationally savvy and wanted to create our own collective infrastructure that was totally separate and new and novel, we could entertain that as well. But I, you know, my own intuition is we might want to stick with a existing infrastructure that has already been proven to work. With that existing infrastructure, Bryce, with, with that in mind, Bryce had asked in a general way, would the cloud-based data be available for others to see and to work with? Would it be open sourced in that respect? I think we could make it um, potentially open source. I think it would have to be um, filtered a little bit because there's always going to be noise in any data set. And you can imagine if we have dozens or hundreds of float centers coming in, some float centers will collect data exactly according to procedure. Other float centers may not. Some people will fill things out incorrectly. So there's going to be some sort of filtering process to clean this data set up. But we could imagine once that is into a proper uh, sort of uh, a well-organized database, we could have a system in place where people could apply to um, scour that data set for specific questions. Um, you know, people could say, I'm interested in understanding how floating affects sleep. Could I look at the database to better understand that? And we could set up a way where they could do it. Um, maybe we decide that we want to make it completely open source. That's something the collective is going to need to decide. And that, you know, with a cloud-based system would be totally doable. And the, the other thing I should point out, with a cloud-based system, it's super easy to implement new questions. So, for example, if there's something that comes up in society that is of relevance to floating, let's say COVID-19, right? And we think floating could have an impact on long-haul symptoms. This is something Flux is very interested in. We could then very rapidly create new questionnaires directly tapping this aspect and then disseminate them to all the centers that are connected to this cloud-based system. So what I love about this infrastructure is once the platform is there, it's the gift that keeps giving. And we could keep adding new questionnaires, new surveys, new metrics that could then inform the whole industry. Love it. If I can, I think these are just sh shorter questions if you just kind of want to rapid fire here. Um, can there be an affiliation with MAPS for collaborative research? Potentially, I think there, there, there can be. I think it all, it all depends on the nature of the study and the safety of it and so forth. But I, I think there could be affiliations with a lot of organizations um, to, help, to help sort of facilitate all the research we want to do. Any updates on Neuroverse EEG equipment? Yeah, I, I spoke with Ricardo last week and, um, you know, they're still fundraising. It's, it's a big issue getting startup funding, but they, they've had some promising leads. They're still going at it. And the hope would be once they get what's called Series B startup funding, they're going to actually be able to create a product that goes to market, at which point, any float center could be buying these systems. And I've made sure that Neuroverse makes these systems completely waterproof, completely lightproof, totally float compatible. And the newest model, the newest version of the Neuroverse system actually is perfect for floating. So I can't wait for them to get their next round of funding so they could then take this to market and then everyone could measure their brainwaves while um, they're floating. The other thing I'll say is, 
Um, we have formed a collaboration with a UCLA researcher named Joel Froelich, who is um, helping us analyze some of the EEG data that we've already collected. And I'm excited to, to sort of scour through that and publish on that so you guys could actually see what we're finding. Uh, Mark Anderson, would you mind unmuting yourself? I'm not quite clear on your question here, the most recent question you've asked. Are you available to ask your question? Hey, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, thanks for this. This is this is awesome. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, I've been kind of doing my own due diligence and reaching out to, um, you know, we, before Corona break, as I call it, started, we were kind of trying to partner up with some brain mapping components and kind of for my own data collection and, and kind of, you know, push that forward. Um, but I also started working with um, some local, local universities and some ideas of collaborations and, um, and the more I dug into it, the more I realized that there had to be some kind of components in place through the university to do any kind of human studies. Um, you probably know more about that, Justin, as far as what that looks like, kind of more of a, a localized um, version of setting up these little mini data point collection sites, if you will. Yeah, I think uh, Dylan maybe could post a link, but I, I did a presentation at a float conference a few years ago um, during one of those Friday um, pre-conference meetings about the Float Research Collective, but Art of the Float actually hosts um, a recording of that conversation along with a PowerPoint presentation. But the whole presentation was really about what does it take to get ethical approval to do research with human subjects? It turns out it's not trivial. You have to get something called an IRB, an institutional review board, to approve all the research. You have to have an informed consent, and you have to have it signed by every subject that participates in the study. This is something that prior projects in the float industry have failed to do, and as a consequence, they can't publish it in peer-reviewed journals. And so there is a lot of legwork that goes into just getting approval to do human research. And it's not trivial, it's not easy, but it's something that I want the collective to be very active in, in terms of providing these materials, providing the guidance on how we could actually get the ethical approval. And then at least in terms of the cloud-based system, having an ethical approval in place through an IRB. And it's going to take a lot of work to do that, but that's one of the main goals of the collective is to, to facilitate ethically approved research. Not necessarily questions, but uh, they're just people who are putting out their interest. Um, I think it was Andy Scheer is talking about, oh, um, it wasn't Andy. Jonathan Rouge is talking about tons of interest in developing something that might um, help with cloud-based computing. Juliet mentioned that um, I think uh, FloatHelm could potentially integrate. I think that was Juliet. Sorry if it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I just want to let you know that people are uh, putting out ideas already and showing interest. And I'll just let um, everybody know that I think um, that will be perfect for emailing Justin and setting up these different groups of wherever your interest lies. Um, Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think something like the FloatHelm, which already has an infrastructure in place, a lot of float centers are already using it that could be a huge boon to the collective as a way to sort of get donations and uh, facilitate um, this research. So I, I'm excited to, to try to partner with the helm and find ways that we could actually uh, facilitate this. What if uh, your helm, the person in charge of helm at your center could select a percentage of revenue that just goes directly to donation. Uh, we'd, we'd be willing to do that. Um, Andy, I think I mentioned your name. If you want to unmute, if you want to ask your question about um, marketing opportunities, please. Sure. Thanks so much, Dylan. So, uh, Justin, I'm just curious, in your vision for kind of prioritizing potential uh, fields of research with, within this group-organized effort, what role will uh, understanding different like market sizes play in prioritizing different fields of study? Uh, you know, one, one of the things that I, I know you've touched on in presentations before is particularly with anxiety. You, you've talked about the market size out there and the, the amount of spending being done to try to you know, manage that, you know, those anxiety disorders. Um, in your mind, is there, is there a priority for what, uh, what fields you might be looking into first or, or, or studies you might be setting up first with the intention of you know, actually breaking into market opportunities for, for potential customers? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, to, to me, we have to look at the research that is already existing. And it's very clear that floating rapidly relieves certain types of conditions, that especially those that deal with pain, stress, or anxiety. Those are kind of, to me, the three most well-supported domains in terms of somebody goes into a float and within an hour, they're going to have reduced pain, reduced stress, reduced anxiety. Now, there's a lot of other conditions and um, low-hanging fruits beyond that, things like insomnia, for example, traumatic brain injury as another example, that there's just not a lot of research on, but very big markets, nevertheless. And so I think we have to be prudent. A lot of this will be dependent on how much money we're able to fundraise. But to me, I feel like the priority should go to where A, where the research is showing the biggest effects and B, where the biggest market share is, which in terms of pain, stress and anxiety, those are giant market shares, ubiquitous conditions. Even mostly healthy people have some degree of it. So I think we have to be prudent based off of the fundraising that we're able to accomplish. But I also think we, we shouldn't be scared to explore uncharted territories either, but we have to come together as a collective and figure out based off of our resources, what those explorations will look like. I wanna fund pilot studies. I wanna fund exploratory studies too, but it all depends on how much we're able to fundraise. Wonderful, thank you. Juliet, are you still in here? And if so, would you like to talk about Research Explained? It looks like you have a few questions. Yeah, I am still here. Sorry, I was having uh, trouble with my mute button. Um, we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I did have a few questions. So as far as that uh, Research Explained section goes, uh, how far along has that been developed? And um, uh, what are you imagining the scope for that being? Um, I mean, this this... Sound, sounds very reminiscent to a lot of the work that uh, I've already done in a lot of capacities. So um, there might be very easy ways to just have something done. Yeah, no, I think, you know, right now it's, it's something we've been entertaining, especially after the float fMRI study came out, we got a lot of feedback that people want to be able to interpret it. And it's hard, you know, it's, this is complex neuroscience and neuroscience is still in its infancy. So there's still a lot of things we don't even know how to explain. But I think having something like Research Explained will be a nice avenue to do it. Now, I can imagine this being part and parcel of several modalities. The one we've been envisioning, but we haven't started yet, Julia, is, a, is more or less like a blog. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of a short form um, web page that would go maybe study by study and try to just give a very a basic synopsis of what the findings were and also what the findings are not, because I think sometimes people have a tendency to over-interpret or misinterpret things. Well, um, one of the things that I found uh, kind of uh, useful when talking about this, I um, there's a floating solutions resource that we put together and have revised over the years, uh, uh, that's called the About Float Tanks Guide. And we have a, uh, a a research summary in there that sort of takes a broad strokes look. And the way that we organized that was based on uh, the, the benefits that people experience from floating and where we were seeing those benefits in different studies. Resource as well. And that, that could become part of, of research explained too. I, I'm, I, yeah, I guess I'm more envisioning it that it would be more study oriented. So like a new study sure. comes out and then you would have like a little blog about the basic findings, what it is, what it is not. And then maybe complementing that some very simple social media posts that sort sure. of summarize the, the main thrust of the finding that then could be sort of disseminated out to the community. Well, 
Uh, and then, the, I mean, the the thing about that is it all gets kind of uh, sticky because where do you start, right? Do you do that for each individual um, article that you have on, on the clinical research page? How far back do you go? Uh, how much do you rely on some of the, the older data that even, uh, you know, some of the researchers who participated in say that those findings aren't the strongest, you know? And so I think... Um, when discussing stuff like that, I mean, there are, you know, major uh, studies and the fMRI study, that is something that I have actively been working on. So um, the, uh, sort of putting together a, a summary of that. So yeah, you, that you, will you exist. You're so in- perfect, uh, Julia, to help lead the, um, the education committee because we need people who are invested in the float research could understand how to communicate that. You're very good at communicating and, and, you know, to uh, me, that's a big part of what the education committee is going to do is this research explained aspect. The, mm-hmm. the other thing that I'm, I've entertained and would love to get you guys feedback on is maybe short video blog posts where in like a two or three minute way, either myself or maybe the researcher who published the study could give a very quick layperson summary that then you could share and so forth. Um, I thought that could be another way to sort of very quickly mm. explain the, the research. Yeah, and this is actually another thing that I started thinking about is that the uh, the education uh, seems to be the uh, least sort of uh, fleshed out of, of mm-hmm. the different uh, branches and it sounds kind of like uh, the most useful thing that it would it could be is a um, is a, a, a sort of the marketing arm, right? Yeah. That's right. Um, if if I could just uh, say, uh, uh, Juliet, I, I completely um, uh, agree that um, it has a link to the marketing arm um, in in terms of um, educational awareness to the layperson, support to the centres, and also um, uh, drawing in um, more more funding support. Because if it's simple and um, and easy to understand, you'll find the niche for people who want to contribute money to it um, as well. So it really becomes the nucleus of um, this whole piece is how well do we communicate outwardly to mass audiences and perhaps one of the things as you move through this, Justin, is is understanding the audience that we target because that's one of the learnings we've had in Australia as well. We have to be really clear about whether we're targeting centres, um, the professional, uh, the professionals that we want to refer to us um, or the clients we're wanting to attract because the language and the target needs to be um, modified to, to capture their, their attention. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. There. This is another thing that um, I have uh, been very cognizant in my time of of writing um, about float research in the social media capacity is uh, what becomes long form, what becomes short form. How do you and how do you handle that responsibly? And uh, those are considerations that um, you know they do get very, very difficult very quickly, especially when we look at things like resources in the, the float industry that aren't necessarily, that have claims that aren't necessarily uh, based in, in uh, solid research, like uh, being able to get a full night's sleep in just a couple hours and stuff like that. So um, differentiating yourself uh, from that. And, and uh, even when there are strong claims to be made, it, it actually can do you more, good to sort of uh, temper how you present those so that you don't sound like a snake oil salesman. Um, I think that's the key part, Juliet, is we got to move floating away from snake oil, which I think a lot of medical professionals kind of put it in, which is not fair, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately that's how it is right now. And so the more we could kind of make the research explain grounded in the actual science, linking to the peer-reviewed studies and making it um, not overstating the findings. I think that's going to be important to, to getting out of that snake oil domain. Right. Uh, and this is, you know, this is something that I have uh, thought a lot about over the last five years. Um, so I, I, I do think that there is a lot of uh, work that needs to be done. And, and however it goes forward, I think that I would encourage uh, uh, caution 
we've we've seen uh you know the work from maps and i have uh i some of the the way that they present their data is not necessarily inaccurate, but it does make me nervous uh, because I don't think that uh, a lot of the ways that they do it is necessarily responsible. But they're they also have a very different um, landscape that they're dealing with. So that's right. And keep in mind, all those psychedelic studies I showed you were combined with psychotherapy, very intensive psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So you know, of course, the the average layperson is going to say, "Let's just take magic mushrooms," or "Let's just take ecstasy." and I'll be all better. But in fact, all the research only showed that you're better when you combine it with a very well-trained therapist. And right. that's obviously something that's going to have to come out through maps and make sure they don't give the illusion that you could do this on your own. Right. Justin, is there um, a thought about that, that same messaging for float that we that there is an enhancement of outcome if, they're, if it's combined with therapy? I think we have to do the research studies. You know, right now, almost all the float research studies out there, with the exception of a few case studies, have looked at floating by itself as its own modality, no combination necessarily at all. A lot of the research didn't give people instruction sets. They literally threw them into the tank and said, go at it. So um, it's possible that when we do a combination treatment, whether it's with psychotherapy or with some other Uh, medication or modality, you see this enhancement effect, which um, is maybe the sort of thing that we need to be thinking about in terms of the the types of research studies we want to do with clinical uh, populations. That's a good question for the research committee. And, you know, I agree that it, it, it may be ultimately the best way to apply floating is in combination. But once again, there hasn't been any studies to show that. This, this actually, I did have a question about, uh, you were talking about the, the type of study looking at like the harmful effects of floating, which I think is, is a really interesting thing um, that there's, you know, obviously there's not real research done on that so far. And in comparison to that meditation study that you were showing, um, for this to be something that is uh, looked at and, and uh sort of like moves the needle forward. Do you think, what is the scope of that need to be? Does it need to be about 500 participants like that meditation study? Uh, I think it's a good start. Um, You know, to be honest, if we got this cloud-based system up and running, we could probably get thousands of people to fill out safety questionnaires and uh, symptom checklists, for example, and just see what is the base rate of various adverse effects and just categorize it just like that meditation study. Um, If we had 500 people, that would be great. But I think if we had this cloud-based system, we could have 5,000 people and really show in a conclusive way how safe floating is. So as an extension from uh, Juliet's conversation uh, with us about educational outreach efforts and various ways to organize that, Mark Anderson brought up the um, idea of coordinating speaking engagements which are valid for uh, CEUs, for healthcare professionals and others. He said, I I love to see talks about rest at this caliber of understanding to plant the seeds uh, into the minds of medical professionals that may want to be involved or, or, um, you know, want to, want to understand this. So um, what do you think about uh, the education subcommittee creating opportunities um, for CEUs? I think it's a great idea. Um, I could tell you when I visited Tony in Australia, I was the keynote speaker at the International Mental Health Conference, which gave a ton of CEUs for all the people in attendance who are mostly mental health professionals. Um, What I found in America is there's a bit more resistance to, to including flotation rest as a modality that's acceptable that you could actually get CEU credits for, but it's there. I feel like Um, You know, for example, massage therapy organizations, chiropractic organizations, physical therapy organizations, they may all be willing to host me or somebody else as a speaker where they'll be providing CEU credits to their uh, professionals. Nursing would be another perfect example, Sandra. So, you know, to me, 
it would be great if the FRC could find ways to get inroads into these various organizations that offer CEUs and find a way to make floating part of what is being presented. Because that's the only way to break down these barriers is you have to present at medical um, and um, clinical meetings. That's going to be important. Can you um, talk about why you chose 501c3? Yeah, 501c3 is the main nonprofit for research. Um, For example, Float Conference, I believe, is a 501c6. And I believe the FTA is as well. That's more business-oriented. For nonprofit research, you really want to be a 501c3. And does, uh, I think the question was, is there a tax tax exemption status for that? Or excuse me, a tax deduction, international status for tax deduction. So nationally, there is. um, And and I think it's um, both on federal and most state taxes as well. Definitely federal tax, but at the state level, each state has their own rules on what you could deduct for um, 501c3s. Internationally, that's a good question. Um, It's something I'd have to ask my lawyer about. I don't know off the top of my head. My my sense is that if your country has a nonprofit um, understanding um, or um, rule base, they would hopefully allow deductions to other nonprofits internationally. I would hope so, but I don't know for sure. Um, It's a good question. Andy Scher asks a question that I think you touched on during your presentation, but um, how much money needs to be raised for each new study that would be capable of being published in a peer review journal of the quality tier that you were aiming for? I think it depends. You know, if you take some of those phase three trials that MAPS was running as a, as an example, mm-hmm. you know, those will probably run anywhere from, you know, two, three, $4 million dollars. Um, the multi-site trials, that could be per year. Um, it's really expensive once you start doing multi-site RCTs. If you want to do smaller scale pilot studies um, that could be done in a short period of time, say maybe two, three, four years long, you could probably get away with anywhere from a few hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars, kind of like the, the study, the NIH study that I've been running um, uh, with LIBOR. So there's a lot of range. If you want to just do a, a pilot study that's just sort of looking at, you know, does floating show an effect with this condition or that condition and just collect a small amount of data and a small amount of subjects, you may be able to do that for, you know, between fifty dollars to $100,000. So I think it really depends on whether we want to do a pilot set of pilot studies, a set of sort of mid-range or smaller scale RCTs, or a set of larger scale um, multi-site RCTs that would enable us to get published in, say, the top journals. I think that is all dependent on how much money we're able to fundraise. I I don't think there's anything wrong with pilot studies. They're just not going to get into the best journals. And then these smaller mid-scale studies could get into decent journals, totally worthy of publication and will help advance our cause. So there's nothing wrong with the smaller mid-scale studies. But if we want to compete with, say, MAPS or Big Pharma or any of these other things, we need to be raising in the millions of dollars. There are low-hanging fruit uh, that will, you can help encourage people to participate in between now and 2023. Uh, what what can us individual float center owners be doing? I think for sure, um, you know, spreading the word on social media, you guys collectively have a a giant reach um, with your social media platforms. And as new research comes out, as fundraising campaigns come out, once we have 501c3 status, start spreading the word. We need to have a big grassroots effort in this endeavor. And maybe a philanthropist will be connected to us Maybe um, another researcher who's thinking about doing float research will be connected to us through these efforts. So that's one big thing you guys could all do. If you um, want to join a subcommittee and are willing to devote the time and effort to being part of that committee, not just surface level, but really diving in and trying to make this work, 
that would be a huge help because we need a lot of people to infuse those subcommittees. Can you then, Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead, Bill. Can you elaborate on what, what that might look like? What does it mean? How many hours might be involved per week or month? It, it's something that each subcommittee is going to have to set up independently, I think. My guess is you're going to have a routine meeting. Maybe it's weekly, maybe it's monthly, but somewhere in that range. And that would be sort of probably a Zoom call with that subcommittee. And then maybe we'll have like a quarterly or, you know, once every, you know, uh, five or six month meeting of the whole collective with all the different subcommittees coming together, right? Or maybe you, you would be coordinating side meetings with another subcommittee because you're trying to bounce ideas off of a specific issue. But my guess is, you know, if you joined a subcommittee, you would probably be expected to meet at the most weekly, at the least monthly. Um, and you would probably have some work and research to be doing in between meetings so you could bring uh, things to the table for the next meeting. So that's my guess. But each subcommittee is going to have to sort of dictate what the commitment is and whether um, people are willing to actually take that commitment. I actually don't have, there was an email address you wanted us to email if we were interested. Is that correct? Um, if yeah, do you that, see that you... at the bottom here? Feinstein.float at gmail.com. If somebody's willing yeah. to drop that into the chat, just so everybody can copy paste, I would appreciate that. Brad is curious if there are going to be standards um, for float centers to do this research, such as soundproofing, style of float tank, anything like that to that you'll require? I, I want to be a little agnostic to that question. I think it's something the research committee needs to decide upon. My, my own take is that we need to, at the very least, document with each float what type of tank they're floating in. So we could then use that as a covariate or separate it and do a, a sub-tank analysis and see are some tanks fostering better benefits for one condition or another. In terms of the actual variables, soundproofing, lightproofing, temperature control, humidity control, um, carbon dioxide control, air ventilation, etc., these are important questions that often get missed in most published float research. And it's something that I think if we had a cloud-based system, we could start answering. We could even start answering time of day effects. You know, does, does benefits seem to appear more in the mornings, the afternoons, the evenings, etc.? So I think we could set up the cloud-based system to collect these data points, but we have to be judicious about what we collect because every data point requires somebody to fill out another question. But I think it's, it's all within the realm of possibility. I, I want to be open-ended, though, because we want to look at what's happening in the real world. So I don't necessarily want to exclude centers that aren't perfectly calibrated. Maybe they're still showing some benefit and we could pick up on that. So it's, it's an important question. It's something that the research committee is going to have to think carefully about. Are there low-hanging fruit uh, that will, you can help encourage people to participate in between now and 2023? Uh, what, what can us individual float center owners be doing? I think for sure... Um, you know, spreading the word on social media, you guys collectively have a, a giant reach um, with your social media platforms. And as new research comes out, as fundraising campaigns come out, once we have 501c3 status, start spreading the word. We need to have a big grassroots effort in this endeavor. And maybe a philanthropist will be connected to us. Maybe, um, another researcher who's thinking about doing float research will be connected to us through these efforts. So that's one big thing you guys could all do. If you um, want to join a subcommittee and are willing to devote the time and effort to being part of that committee, not just surface level, but really diving in and trying to make this work, that would be a huge help because we need a lot of people to infuse those subcommittees. Can you, then, Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead, Bill. Can you elaborate on what, what that might look like? What does it mean? How many hours might be involved per week or month? It, it's something that each subcommittee is going to have to set up independently, I think. My guess is you're going to have a routine meeting. 
Maybe it's weekly, maybe it's monthly, but somewhere in that range. And that would be sort of probably a Zoom call with that subcommittee. And then maybe we'll have like a quarterly or, you know, once every, you know, uh, five or six month meeting of the whole collective with all the different subcommittees coming together, right? Or maybe you, you would be coordinating side meetings with another subcommittee because you're trying to bounce ideas off of a specific issue. But my guess is, you know, if you joined the subcommittee, you would probably be expected to meet at the most weekly, at the least monthly. Um, and you would probably have some work and research to be doing in between meetings so you could bring uh, things to the table for the next meeting. So that's my guess. But each subcommittee is going to have to sort of dictate what the commitment is and whether um, people are willing to actually take that commitment. Um, I actually don't have, there was an email address you wanted us to email if we were interested. Is that correct? Um, if yeah, do you that, see that you... at the bottom here? Feinstein.float at gmail.com. Oh, is that on the second screen? Sorry, I don't have that up at the moment. If somebody's willing to drop that into the chat, just so everybody can copy paste, I would appreciate that. I think we've covered all the questions. If I've missed somebody's question, I apologize. Does any, if anybody wants to unmute and ask a question, please feel free. Um, and hopefully this will go smoothly. <laughs> And uh, most people have stayed in with this conversation from from start to finish. I think that's really exciting in and itself. You know, this is something people really are interested in supporting. Perfect. That's Great. fantastic. Thank you guys for sharing that. Um, are there any other questions Does, or anything anybody wants to share? I'll unmute and just say that I'm so excited. Um, I love seeing everybody's interest come forward. And I feel like already in this conversation, we see some subcommittee people kind of coming out. And I just can't wait to see what happens over the next couple of months. Yeah, th thank you. And thank you, everyone, for attending today. We need passionate people who believe in, in the healing powers of floating, who want to see this become an accepted modality. And it's, it's going to be a grassroots effort. I could tell you because I've been one of the only researchers in the world studying this for the past decade. It, it is a lonely front. And I'm sure MAPS felt that same way back when they started in the 80s. But look where they are today. They're about to get FDA approval. So I think we're at the beginning of something very important. It could take our lifetime, but I'm willing to, to commit that effort because I want to see this through to the end. So, so thank you guys. And I'll be presenting this at the float conference and trying to get some more support through the people who attend that. And this is just going to be a running dialogue until we get 501c3 status, hopefully by early next year. Justin, is there a place where people can early donate? Um, like for instance, will there be a crowdfunding um, place where if people wanted to donate early, they could? Um, potentially, uh, but the problem is it won't be tax deductible yet. So I've been holding off on doing that just because I, I want to make sure everything's tax deductible. But it's something we could think about if we thought there was enough interest already. The, the other thing I was going to say with, um, with that is it's been such a hard year with the pandemic that I'm a bit reluctant to, to request money in 2021. Um, but I feel like 2022 could be a better time for a full-fledged fundraising campaign. That reminds me, somebody was asking, how will they know when it's possible to donate? And I, I will just say, if, if you were aware of this meeting, there will only be that probably times 10. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you'll be aware. That's right. We'll make, we'll make sure everyone is aware once um, 501c3 status is obtained. Can we look for grants for this cause at our local level? Absolutely. And that's something I want to help facilitate is teaching people how to get grants, teaching people how to get IRB approvals if they want to do local research. That's a big part of the collective. I got one question. Please. Uh, regarding charities. Uh, I'm, I'm in Canada, so it's not a big deal for me uh, for us to like kind of if we're donating in like USD um, but has there any been there any consideration at all for maybe uh, down the line, especially if this is, you know, 
possibly multi-decade long uh, of a journey to accept uh, like cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin as a form of donation because that's going to be I find that's going to be much easier uh, across the whole world for people to be able to like donate in a permissionless way um, without having to rely on intermediaries and banks. Uh, like just from my own personal experience, like last year during the height of the pandemic, especially in like Italy, um, I was able to donate money to like an Italian Red Cross foundation that had uh, a Bitcoin uh, QR code set up. Um, and, you know, people could donate from all around the world in very small amounts. Like you could donate as little as like, you know, a dollar or two. Um, but that's usually like uh, no bank is going to accept a $1 wire transfer from one country to another. Right. Um, I, I love I, this idea. I think it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that we need probably somebody who understands cryptocurrencies on the fundraising committee, because I, I don't. I still don't understand how there could be all this um, global warming because of mining. If it's digital currency, you're not actually going into a mine. So <laughs> I, I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around the whole cryptocurrency thing. There's so much to it. But to me, that should be somebody, at least one person, if not more, on the fundraising committee who who could help us get crypto. Because why not? If, if that's a, a way to fundraise in modern times, we should be doing it. Yeah, I just think it makes it much easier and much more accessible for people to donate in a way that's like, um, you know, a like just a regular float client in South Africa, for example, could donate just like two dollars, you know. And if there's like thousands, if not millions of people around the world that are able to donate in those small amounts that would not have been able to donate otherwise, that could make a huge impact in terms of fundraising. Oh, it'd be giant. Absolutely. I love it. We have a, a question about clinicalflotation.com. Is it okay? Do you need any permission to link from our websites to that? No, I, it was created purely for the float industry as a, as a resource, educational resource, etc. So feel free to link directly to it or share all the, the social media stuff. Any other questions or ideas? Um, I hope everyone is safe and um, staying healthy. We're, we're almost to the end of this crazy pandemic, at least in, in America. And, um, you know, I think we'll have the float conference coming up in a few months. That's exciting. And then uh, for sure by 2022, I think things are going to be relatively normalized, assuming um, the vaccinations keep up. So um, to me, we're on the tail end of this. It's been a horrible um, tough time, I think, for, for everyone, but floating has a place in this post-pandemic world, a world that's filled with stress, filled with anxiety, filled with people who aren't sure how to manage that. And I hope um, you all recognize we're playing an enormous role in sort of getting society back to normal and, and truly appreciative um, for us because of that. So th thank you guys. I, I hope this was um, helpful sort of beginning of a conversation and we'll keep this going. This is really, like I said, the beginning of, of a long marathon, but one I'm excited to be part of. What should people look forward to next from the FRC? Probably the float conference okay. um, is, is probably the next big step. Thank you guys. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much. Thanks to you, Brooke. And, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and sign off unless you want to keep this open. I think, I think we're good. Great. Thanks everybody. That is it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the round table discussion. Thank you so much for listening in on this. Thanks so much to everybody who participated and asked questions and gave information during the round table. Again, I'm just so excited. This was able to go public, uh, completely unexpected and exciting that we were able to get this out there. So um, again, did not intend to fool anybody by this not going live and uh, really just delighted that it did get to go out there. Let's see here. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to my co-hosts in the background for managing questions and muting and all that stuff. Really appreciate it. Special 
thanks to my wife, Sandra, for taking part in that as well uh, and helping ask text questions. And thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thanks to our sponsors. Again, you guys really make this happen for us. And uh, we're able to bring this to you because of them and because of you for supporting us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks to Olga for producing the show. Again, this wouldn't be here without her either. Thanks to Helmbot, thanks to Isopod, and remember, as always, go to the show page, find that email address, and go ahead and let Dr. Feinstein, let Brooke know that you are interested in joining the Float Research Collective. Yay, we'll see you next week.